the history of this place that we call Nubia goes all the way back to before Homo sapiens. Egyptologists have separated Egypt from Nubia. In anthropology, the scientific racism is there almost from the very beginning. Africa was this dynamic place with so many different areas of development. When we get into those kind of discussions, when it gets into the why was Nubia erased or why do we not hear about Nubia in the way that we hear about Egypt, I think that is where the culturally responsive part comes in because it helps all students confront this idea of bias and how bias has affected us over time. The ancient very much plays into the present and it has vibrancy for for African people all over the world. I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Study Center at Boston University. Africa is at once the most romantic and the most tragic of continents. There are those, nevertheless, who would write universal history and leave out Africa. No other than W.E.B. Du Bois, the esteemed Harvard-educated African-American historian, sociologist, and civil rights activist, wrote those words in 1915. In 1933, Carter G. Woodson, a fellow Harvard-educated African-American historian, would echo the sentiment, underscoring the harm that came from excluding, erasing, and forgetting Africa. These critiques resonate today. And yet there exist troves of archaeological and historical research to correct the omissions and distortions identified by the likes of Du Bois and Woodson. The historical record is replete with examples of Africa's contribution to humanity. This bright continent glows with millennia of civilizational development, even if so much of this remains untold. One such area that was overlooked by archaeologists and historians during the period when Du Bois and Woodson were issuing their critiques was that of Nubia. This was in spite of the attention that Egypt was receiving at the time despite the fact that Egypt and Nubia cannot be understood as distinctive, separate, and unrelated. Even only a cursory look at the 25th dynasty in Egypt and its black pharaohs would reveal how misguided it would be to draw a line between these Nile Valley civilizations. Nubia, at times, overlooked. At times, presented as a contrast to Egypt it has been used as a shorthand for perceived and supposed African inferiority. Its past has been subjected to the racial theories of the global North. So in this episode, we're venturing to Nubia in search of Africa's vibrant past. We'll begin by hearing from Deborah Hurd, who will help situate us in time and place when talking about Nubia. My name is Deborah Hurd. 
I am a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago in anthropology, uh, but my research area is ancient Nubian archaeology. Nubia actually is the term that archaeologists use to talk about this region, but it's not the term that was used in ancient times. But the region that we call or classify as Nubia archaeologically is the area south of Egypt. We call it Nubia because at various times throughout its history, it was occupied by various groups of people. These people did not create what we would consider a nation state at that time, but they were occupying the geography. And I should say in modern times, what we're looking at is Egypt and Sudan. If Nubia is a term used by archeologists to describe a region, that today consists of parts of modern Egypt and Sudan? Well then, what peoples, what civilizations have existed in this space over time? People have been moving in and out of this landscape since the time of early Homo sapiens. You can tell that there have been a lot of people that have come in and out of the area that have left parts of their culture there. The Nilo-Saharan people are the ones that actually invented pottery. Some of the earliest pottery in the Nile Valley is found in Nubia. One of the most interesting archeological features in Nubia is Nabda Playa. And Nabda Playa is out in the Western desert. These people who were out in the desert, who were cattle people, they built this big stone structure older than Stonehenge. And they were astronomical devices. This is centuries before there are pyramids in Egypt. Why? Because between two of the uprights, the sun rose between them at the winter solstice. The winter solstice is significant because within a few weeks, the rains start in Ethiopia, which brings the silt, the flooding of the Nile River. And the silt that gets left behind fertilizes and, you know, you have the grasses and things start to grow. If you're cattle people and you're out in the desert, you want to know about what time you need to pack up your cattle to move over there for your cattle to graze. We see several political configurations occupy that Nubian landmass, um, and it's called different things. The Sixth Dynasty of Egypt, there begins to be a political configuration that comes together, Kush. And this becomes dominant during the Egyptian Middle Kingdom. So you start seeing the name Kush around the Sixth Dynasty. And so we understand that this is a power center in Nubia. And so it's, it's becoming a powerful political center. There is a period of Egyptian colonization where the Egyptians come in and colonize both lower and upper Nubia. And after that is over, about 1050 BC, once the Nubians regain their independence from Egypt, about 200 years later, we see the beginning of a second Kushite kingdom that begins developing a little bit further south. And then they eventually come in and conquer or take over Egypt as well. So that's Egypt's 25th dynasty. So it's the Nubian Kushite dynasty of Egypt. So there are Egyptologists that are doing work on that border region between Egypt and Nubia because they believe that these cultures were related. There are scholars that are trying to look at them saying that there was a cultural continuum along the Nile Valley. 
They did not see a separation because Egypt didn't exist and neither did Nubia. So they were just people along the Nile Valley. And when you live in that kind of close proximity, you have to be sharing some aspects of your culture with each other. That region has been known by a variety of names throughout history. So in the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, the reference is to Cush. But in the New Testament, where it had been recorded, you know, in Greek, then they're talking about Ethiopia. But Ethiopia is not modern-day Ethiopia. Again, it's Nubia. The term Ethiopia means, you know, the burnt face or sun-kissed, reflecting that the sun has baked the skin to make it dark. So far, Deborah shared with us a little bit about the different political configurations found in Nubia. But what do we know about the roles played by women within some of these political configurations? They highly valued women in their society. So the role of the queen mother was something that was very evident. When the Nubian king was being installed as king and you would see him being crowned or receiving affirmation from the god, he being accepted by the god as king, but you would see his mother there. So the high status of women, so, you know, the princesses would act as priestesses. So some of the kings would dedicate one of their daughters to the temple and she would become the god's wife, which means she was actually the high priestess of the temple. And then you had, in the times of Meraway, you had actual ruling queens. And she didn't have to present herself as a man. She presented herself as a woman. She presented herself as a big woman, (laughs) you know, so big, rotund, voluptuous woman. But she would have on her shawls, she would have with the fringes hanging down, she'd have her nails done, she'd have her hair done, she'd be wearing her gown, and she'd have captives by one hand and the mace in the other. So that perception of powerful and valued women is something that you see in the Nubian context. So far, we've seen that Nubia has been occupied since the earliest days of Homo sapiens, if not well before. Deborah has described the political, scientific, and economic contributions made by Nubians. She's given a glimpse into some of the roles played by women in Nubia. So just how is it that we know what we know about Nubia? What sources are available to archaeologists? A lot of what we know about Nubian history from Nubia is from the archaeology. And the archaeology consists of pottery. A lot of it is from burials. So how is the body interred? Is it flexed? Is it straight? Is it looking west? There gets to be a standardization early in Egyptian and Nubian history. So before there are dynasties in Egypt, And in Nubia, there's a standard way of positioning bodies and burials. And the types of things that you place in the burial kind of become standardized. So the Nubians did a lot with jewelry, beads. So we see that in the burials. You have texts from Egypt. Around the 6th dynasty, they start talking about Kush. But before then, even in the early dynastic, when the writing is very rudimentary, there's reference to Taseti. Taseti is the land of the bow. And so the Nubians were known from even early dynastic times to be excellent bowmen. 
But then there are other times in, in Egyptian writings where they talk about the vile Nubians, the vile Kushites. So it seems as if if you look at the writings and depend solely on writings, you come away with the impression that there are times where the Egyptians totally disdained the Nubians. But you also have to understand the time period and be able to put it within a context to understand that this is political propaganda. The final piece of information is from the classical Greek and Roman writings. The Greek historians or the Roman geographers, when they're trying to create or put down in writing a history of, you know, other parts of the world, they include talking about Nubia as well. Knowledge is never self-evident. It is rarely, if ever, neutral. Historians, archaeologists, and scholars more generally enter into the knowledge production and meaning-making processes from certain positions in society. This can have profound implications on the way evidence is understood, on the way facts are interpreted, and on the narratives that become dominant. Producing knowledge entails making decisions about what to emphasize and de-emphasize, about what value to assign to people and to places in the past. This is a subjective process, even when ideals such as objectivity are held in high esteem by professionals. So what has this meant for the understandings and interpretations of Nubia, particularly those that emerged from the scholarship of the Global North? One of the things that we have to consider is the time period when a lot of this knowledge was being produced. So if we go back to the Enlightenment, you start to see that there is a negative perception of African people. You have to consider that the disciplines that form are forming out of these questions that start appearing in the Enlightenment about who is man and what is his purpose. The disciplines address one aspect of these questions. Egyptology also comes out of the same intellectual matrix of enlightenment questions about man. There's this way of dividing the world up, and this comes into Egyptology as well. And it also fuels the eugenics movement, placing one group as the standard or the one in developing a hierarchy. So when you do that, you place yourself as the one, the standard, and everything and everybody else is other. Your group becomes the standard that everyone else is measured by. Egyptologists were the ones that were working along the Nile Valley at the time. They were the ones that also started making the investigations into areas that had the Nubian material. And so when they move into Sudan, you have to also consider that slavery still existed in certain areas and definitely the aftermath of slavery in Europe and, and in the Americas was, was heavily on their minds. So when they see these Sudanese people, there's a negative reaction. When they look at the inscriptions on the temple wall, they see the Egyptians are not portrayed as white. They're this ruddy, reddish color. But then they would see the Nubians and automatically assume because they were darker brown, what I usually 
called dark chocolate. Egyptologists would look at them automatically because of the racial way that they looked at the world would say, oh, the Egyptians considered them to be inferior. So they took their own 19th, 20th century perceptions of the world and how it's supposed to be classified and imposed it on the ancient world. So they already created this racialization that did not exist in the ancient world. And they used that to talk about how the Egyptians and Nubians interacted. So when they go down into Sudan and they start seeing these pyramids, their first reaction is, oh, they were just mimicking the Egyptians. And these are degraded, debased versions of what you find in Egypt. But how is it that these people that you think are just mimicking and copying, how did they become strong enough to rule in Egypt? So then you have to come up with a different narrative. So the the Hamite thesis comes into play here. So if you go back and you remember Ham was Noah's grandson, he was the son of Cush. In biblical terms, it was a way to talk about the divisions of parts of the ancient world. In order to justify slavery, some preachers would say that the curse of Ham was that his skin was turned black. And so that African people were cursed by God to be servants. And so that was their way to to argue for the continuation of slavery. On the other hand, It gets used by anthropologists as a new way to talk about who were these Egyptians? Because one of the first questions that arise when when people start excavating Egypt was, where did these people come from? Who were the Egyptians? And some of the very earliest Egyptologists classified what they're finding as Negroid populations. Well, if you are of the mindset that African people are inferior, African people could not have been the people that built the pyramid. <laughs> this, it just does not follow that logic. So you had people from the very beginning who were trying to find other explanations. So you had the theory that there was a dynastic race that came in to Egypt. And they were the people that built civilization. And they were a white race that came from the east into Egypt. So you have this theory that the only way for civilizations to emerge on the African continent is that it comes from these people who are far more advanced and civilized than the native Africans. If scholars possess the power to silence or erase they also reserve the capacity to challenge, critique, and counter-knowledge when there's a need to reevaluate. If Nubia has been neglected, separated from Egypt, and depicted in racialized terms by some scholars, have there been others who have worked to revisit and repair interpretations of Nubia's contributions to human history? In the early 20th century, the one who's most formidable is W.B. Du Bois. And Du Bois writes a series of books on history where he's conceptualizing the history of Africa. And he's using the most current archaeological findings. And he's using them and saying, you know, this, this work is good. 
if you all will stop with your racist interpretations, drop the interpretations, the level of interpretation where you assign value or disvalue to people and their worth, those parts of the, the interpretations and the analysis need to be discarded. Because Nubia for so long had been diminished in the eyes of scholars from the global north, it could be easy to assume that Nubia was merely forgotten. Yet an affinity for Nubia and an understanding of the power inherent in seeing Africa as home to rich and worthwhile history has not been lost among artists and producers of pop culture. Modern pop culture, one of the first appearances of Nubia happens in the comic books. There's a series of Wonder Woman in the early 70s where they introduced this new character, and she is this warrior, and she's a black warrior woman, and she's fighting with Diana, and it was a fight to the death. And she is about to overpower and kill Diana, and Diana's mother jumps up and stops the fight. And, you know, over the course of time, you find out that the mother had had two daughters, so she had twins. And so, lo and behold, by the end of the story, you find out that that this is Diana's twin. (laughs) And her name is Nubia. Late 80s, 90s, we've had late brand Nubians with a hip-hop group. The 90s brought late Nubians, which they were two sisters from Cameroon, but they're in France. They sing about Makeda, the Ethiopian queen. On one of their CDs, they have a scarab, like an Egyptian scarab. So they're, they're invoking those symbols. Let's think about Nubia in the context of the classroom. If Nubia is a prime example of the power to erase, misrepresent, and promote racial hierarchies through knowledge, That means teachers have a fair amount of responsibility when bringing Nubia into their classrooms. Let's hear from one teacher who's learned directly from Deborah Hurd and taken her insights into his own classroom. My name is Steven Guerrero and I teach sixth grade social studies in the Needham Public Schools in Massachusetts. The sixth grade curriculum in social studies is mainly focused on archeology, span and ancient history. Like a lot of us who grew up a little while ago, um, most of the attention was on Egypt and specifically things like pyramids, King Tut. And so now as a teacher and as a professional and having studied ancient history, really opened my eyes to the fact that not only was this amazing civilization kind of erased from what we learned, but it had not been done by accident. It was purposefully erased. Let's listen to Stephen as he shares with us some of the problems he's encountered, even when being intentional about including and emphasizing Nubia in his classroom. The academic world, the, the professors at the university level, they're doing cutting-edge research. And it takes a while for that to kind of be reflected in the materials and the teaching that we have at the K-12 world. So what that means is the legacy stuff kind of takes a while to be updated. And I think in most classrooms generally, there's still a reflection of Egypt on this huge high pedestal and Nubia kind of the place that Egypt got its gold or that place that fought sometimes and traded sometimes with Egypt, but it was always as a function of Egypt if it's mentioned at all. What can teachers do to push beyond a pedagogical reality 
in which Egypt tends to be centered and elevated, while Nubia remains marginalized and diminished in classrooms. It is a little bit on the teacher to kind of go digging. There's no kind of ready-made pool of classroom-specific um, resources in the way that there is for Egypt. And so that means maybe adapting some things from professional organizations. So the American Research Center in Egypt, they have been hosting talks. They publish their journal every year of the latest archaeology and, and scholarship. And they are very good at kind of spotlighting some Nubian history. And they have a great series of resources. I'd also say the Leo F. Hansberry Society, who are a group of African-American scholars who specifically study the historiography and history and archaeology of Egypt and Nubia, have some great stuff. You have to go digging a little bit. But there are very reliable sources out there for teachers willing to look a little bit deeper. It's not enough to expand the quantity of Nubian history in classrooms. As we heard earlier... More scholarship did not mean, per se, fewer misunderstandings among academics. So how can we avoid stereotyping and reinforcing misconceptions, even when expanding the scope of Nubia in our classrooms? At a very surface level, it's actually possible to do some damage when we are trying to, with best intentions, put in context Nubia in its proper position as an ancient civilization. Egypt was pulled out of its African context on purpose to make it less African and specifically less black African. And so it was associated with cultures like Greece and Rome that in this trope were considered white. And so Egypt was also considered a white civilization. When we talk about Egypt and Nubia now, we have to be careful not to fall into the racist legacy overlay of Egypt's lighter colored or white people and Mediterranean people and Nubia black Africans. We're trying to teach kids how ancient civilizations were just as dynamic and changing and mixed as our society is today. And so I think that's the number one caution I would have is don't fall into the old legacy tropes of Egypt lighter, Nubia black African. But that doesn't mean we kind of ignore or put to the side the fact that both Egypt and Nubia are African civilizations. And that when we see ancient artifacts, the Egyptians specifically were using kind of this formulaic style where they depicted Nubians specifically with much darker skin than the Egyptian kind of red for men and yellowish white for women. Those were all stylized. So I would also caution my students when you look at a piece of, of representational art, this is not meant to look like a photo. This is not meant to look like real life. This doesn't mean this is what people really looked like. They're following a formula so that those folks who couldn't read and could only read through this visual literacy could see this, this dark brown, black colored skin means Nubian and this kind of reddish skin means an Egyptian man and this kind of yellowish whitish skin means an Egyptian woman. It's, it's a signifier, it's a formula, it's not real life. What I do know is that Nubia is really important to bring back into its proper context because it's not that we're looking to elevate Nubia above all, it's that Nubia was purposefully erased. And when we get into like, why did that happen? It happened because of white supremacy, because historians could not believe that these black Africans could have had such an advanced civilization. 
In many state curricula frameworks and in school districts, Nubia often appears in middle school social studies contexts. What should teachers be mindful of when thinking about and teaching Nubia in middle school settings? One of the biggest challenges I have with middle schoolers is that they have a very concrete kind of idea of time. And so I always found that it was really hard for them to understand the scale of time. It's kind of a tricky thing to teach them, you know, how far back is that far. I think the biggest thing that I let kids know is that First, we try to understand them in the context of the time. So they had their own kind of belief system. That means religious beliefs, customs. They had their own languages. They had, you know, different ideas that we did, that we have a lot in common with ancient people, but there's a lot that's very different. And I think that rather than compare ancient people to modern people, it's more like comparing ancient people to other ancient people. So what I, what I don't want to have kids do is conflate modern Egyptians with ancient Egyptians. They're not the same people. And so kind of letting them know that when we study these folks, we have to always reframe that we're not studying modern people from a different area. We're studying ancient people. And I I think that really helps also to kind of tamp down some, you know, cultural misunderstandings that can come up if kids are conflating the ancient people who live in an area with the modern people that live in that same area now. I think that's really important. There's ample opportunity for students to explore a range of themes and concepts when encountering Nubia in the classroom. What are the big ideas that Stephen focuses on when teaching Nubia in his classroom? I want kids to know, first of all, the geography. This is where this place is. Secondly, this is the vast expanse of how long they were there and how they had a very complex relationship with Egypt that cannot easily be explained by either war or trade. There's this whole system going on that just because we ignore it doesn't mean it wasn't real or wasn't dynamic or it wasn't happening. It means that we have to kind of zoom out our lens so that we can actually see that, you know, the Mediterranean, Greece and Rome are not the center of the universe that a lot of history books kind of present them as. And I would really show them things like this Arabian Sea trading network was just as dynamic and full of prosperity and different civilizations and exchanging ideas and belief systems, just as the Mediterranean was at the same time. And I would also say a lot of the history writers point to things like Stonehenge and how advanced the prehistoric folks of Europe were. But you know, about 5,000 years before Stonehenge, there's a place in Nubia called Nabta Playa, which is this unbelievable kind of solar observatory slash calendar where people would come and gather and they would track things like when's the right time to plant and when's the right time to do animal husbandry. And those places became gathering spaces. They still are super curious about ancient civilizations. And especially when it comes to Nubia, they have very little background. And so that, for me, is like an awesome blank canvas to kind of help paint a picture of what kind of a place ancient Nubia was and what kind of people ancient Nubians were. One of my favorite things to kind of reveal to them is how specific it was that Nubia was marginalized. That reveal of how who writes the history affects what history is transmitted. They look at it as like, wow, I'm like really let in on this kind of grown up like secret thing that, you know, you don't see on the surface. But once you do see it, 
you can really point it out. Let's hear from Stephen one more time and sit with his final thoughts for teachers. Go to your book or resources or whatever you're using now when you teach Egypt and kind of flag anywhere that is mentioned, Nubia or Kush or just that area of the Upper Nile. First of all, consider what's, what impression students are getting from what you're already doing. Secondly is, what is the disparity between how you teach Egypt and how you teach Nubia? And think like these two dynamic civilizations were absolutely on par with one another in ancient times. So are you presenting it that way? Or are you giving Egypt all the attention that the 19th and early 20th century historians wanted you to give it while giving Nubia, you know, kind of a passing glance? Find a way to incorporate it now. Don't wait till next year because that's the inertia that we're still wrestling with where Egypt gets all the attention and Nubia doesn't. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa. And to learn more about the center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.